kids ages uh, three pre-K can head down to Holy Cross Kids Worship. The rest of you, uh, if you have a Bible, if you'd open it to the book of 1 John. If you don't have one, the text is in your order of worship. If you don't own one, there's a bunch on the back table. We'd love to give it to you. My name's Rick. I'm the pastor here at Holy Cross. Uh, glad, to have, glad to be here with you and glad for you guys to be here worshiping together. Um, let me kind of transition us into this time. If, if we've picked up nothing else during this study that we've had of First John, I, I think it's that we can see that our, our writer, this, this guy we call John, is um, super committed to clarity, right? And that's important because you and I, we deal with things that need a lot of clarity. Things like, um, what is essential to Christianity? Like, what are, the, what are the boundary lines there? How do we, how do we play that out? Uh, what, what, uh, what's, what should be true in my life as a, as a Christian? Like, it, if I claim to be a Christian, what should my life then look like? Um, when I hear someone teach something and claim to be a Christian, how do I know whether or not what they're actually saying is Christian or not? Those are all things we need help with. And sometimes, clarity comes from repetition. If you've been here during this time, you've probably noticed that John really has about four things that he just keeps hammering on over and over and over again. And he picks them up kind of like a jeweler would with a diamond with whatever those, what are those things you, what are they called? It doesn't matter. But, you know, looking at it through that little magnifying thing and just taking it, looking at different facets of it over and over. It doesn't change the diamond. Diamond never changes, right? But he's just looking at it differently. Um, and so... That's what the Apostle John is doing during this time. And it's what we're going to find today. John has persistently hit us with these either-or statements, and he's going to do so again today. But this time he's going to be drilling home to us what it means uh, that what it means to have the life that God has promised us. So if you have your place in 1 John, we're in chapter 5. If you'd stand, that's our habit here. We're in John chapter 5, verses 6 to 12. Um, as I read this, let us be mindful of the fact that this is God's Word. This isn't uh, something we picked for ourselves. The church didn't decide this would be a good idea. This is God's Word, and it lays claim on us. So let's hear it in that way. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God, that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has this testimony in himself, and whoever does not believe has made God out to be a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God is born concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has the life, and whoever does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Would you pray with me? Father, there's tons uh, going on in our hearts right now. Some of us um, are just weary and needy, and some of us are excited, and some of us are bored already, and we need help. We need your grace. We need your Spirit to come and, and work in us. Um, God, you know my needs and, and my neediness during this time. So we pray, Spirit, that you would come and that you would do that. You would enliven our minds. You would open our hearts to receive you. That you'd be near to us. 
Today's your day, God, and, and we pray that you would meet us during this time. I want to also pray, because I didn't get a chance earlier to pray, uh, for the, the meal and the conversation that's going to be going on this evening um, as, as our city seeks to know what it would be like to live reconciled lives with one another. Uh, God, have mercy. The history of our city is not one of reconciliation. It is one of division. But would you have mercy on us as a people uh, and heal that rift and be with those that are leading it. And God, now during this time, uh, would, you, would you speak? Let uh, Christ and all that he has done come to the fore and the one who speaks fall to the wayside because you, God, are the only one who has the words of eternal life. We're listening, so please speak. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. Uh, so I grew up on comic books. I'm a nerd. I'm unapologetic about that. That's just who I am. Uh, the cool thing is that nowadays my nerddom is becoming vogue, like it's hip, because we have all these movies that are coming out. Um, one's coming out this week. I'm really looking forward to. Uh, another one's coming out in in about a month, and then there's some more later uh, this year. Um, and and uh, I have become that guy that gets text messages from other folks who are in the movies asking questions. What does this mean, right? Um, which are normally followed up by me going, am I really that guy? And they get the yes, yes, you are. Uh, so anyway, it, that, what that means is I get, I get stuff out of those movies that, that the uninitiated don't, which, you know, I feel vindicated. It's great. Uh, the rest of you were doing sports and, and music, and I was reading comic books. I digress. Okay, one of my favorite series of comic books from, from that time when I was growing up was, uh, they were called What If Comics. They were written um, by Marvel, Marvel's Spider-Man, not Batman. Okay, so Spider-Man, that, that group of people. Um, and, and What If basically went like this. What, what, if, what if this really significant event happened differently? Like, what if Spider-Man weren't bitten by a radioactive spider, but by a radioactive tadpole? Like, how would, how would things have turned differently um, if Captain America hadn't gotten his shield? You know, things like that. How would things have played out Differently, And what I love about them is that they deal with the significance of past events. We do that, maybe you're not into comic books, but you're into TV, right? So we have shows about how, what would, what would life be like if, if the Nazis had won World War II, right? Uh, so we do that because we think events matter. And the significance of those events matters. Now the problem is, we tend to get this in our daily lives, but for some reason we think it doesn't matter when it comes to religious issues. But Christianity is dogged about the fact that history matters. The problem in John's day and the problem in ours is that many are making claims that historical, the historical claims of the Bible, historical claims of Christianity, don't matter much when it comes to Jesus. Right? It doesn't really matter what, whether or not he actually even was an actual person. It's just like you know, the ideas of Jesus that are important. And what John is going to do this morning is he's going to annihilate that idea. He's going to annihilate it. By, and he's going to do that by showing us this. That the work of Jesus is historically verifiable and eternally significant. All of that from this passage. Can you believe that? The work of Jesus is historically verifiable and eternally significant. Now there's an outline in your bulletin if that's helpful for you. If not, you can leave it there. But let's, let's begin with the history issue. Look down at verses 6 to 8. Now let's be honest. I started reading, and especially if you're not familiar with this letter, John's letter, you were probably like, what is he talking about? Like water and blood and what? I, I, I get it, okay? Um, and I know you were probably thinking that because I was too when I first read these. Uh, but they're going to make sense, but you need to stick with me for a minute, okay? 
What this is talking about is the scope of Jesus' work. So let me break down the language a little bit that might help. Um, There are certain words in here that you and I are numb to because of our cultural baggage. We tend to add meaning to them. And one of those is the word testify. So when you and I, look, even if you're not from the valley, you're in the valley now. Okay, So when you hear the word testify, you think of someone standing up and giving you their, their subjective religious experience, right? Here's what God did in my life. Let me testify. Okay, and, and that's understandable. It's not what John means. Okay, What we tend to do with the word testify is we go, that doesn't really matter. <laughs> All right, let me zone out and wait for something else. Or, or this is great for you, right? But that's not the way John uses the word. Remember, John's name isn't actually John, it's Jonah. Okay? Jonah is a Hebrew name. He's Jewish. And in the Jewish world, the idea of testimony is very important. And the word testify in the Jewish world was there to uh, validate the veracity of a claim. Is something true or not? So when he speaks about this, he is dealing with what uh, theologian Leslie Newbigin calls public truth, a public truth claim. Testimony is required because something has happened, and we need to hear what that something is. Okay? That's why in verse 8 he says that these three things agree. What he's talking about is all these things, and we'll talk about them in a second, what they mean. Blood, water, and spirit all agree. Three witnesses are agreeing to the same thing. Okay? So far so good? Now... We're dealing with the issue of public truth, but what is that public truth? We'll look at verse 6. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Okay, So, he's making a claim about the person of Jesus. Whatever else this blood and water and spirit thing that's talking about, it's about Jesus. And so we need to hear it that way. He's talking about something having to do with Jesus. And so, what scholars will tell you is that the water and blood and spirit thing are having to do with the scope of Jesus' ministry. If you're familiar with the Bible, especially the Gospel accounts, you'll know that really important in the life of Jesus um, is this thing called his baptism, right? So two Gospels, Matthew and Luke, begin before Jesus' life. Um, well, John begins before anything. But, but it picks up with Jesus at, at the point of his ministry beginning. John and Mark kind of introduce Jesus at his baptism. That was the point at which he was um, anointed for his ministry, Okay? He began his public ministry in his baptism. Uh, the, the idea of blood, of course, is speaking of his death. The, the, when they talk about spirit, that's referencing the outpouring of the spirit on the church in Acts chapter 2. It was a really big deal. We'll get into why in a second. And that happened after his res- resurrection. So John is making a claim about the veracity of Jesus' earthly ministry. It happened after his baptism. His death and his resurrection. Now here's why. The church that John is writing to is dealing with teachers that are coming along saying, and maybe this sounds familiar to you, that it doesn't really matter what Jesus did. It doesn't really matter whether he did anything. In fact, um, it's probably better if we don't understand Jesus as being human because, or, or, or because you know, God isn't going to get his hands dirty in things. So Jesus not being human means he kind of floated above the realities of the world. And all these other people have come in saying really crude things about him dying. God would never do that. God would never get his hands dirty in life. Their whole point is that what happened in history doesn't matter. That what was important was spiritual knowledge. And that is a totally Greek thing. And, often, and also totally religious. It's just not Christian. 
So think with me. Uh, the other point of my nerddom was that I loved Greek mythology growing up, which I think is kind of like the same thing as comic books, if we're being honest. Like, modern-day comics are really mythology that we just, like... Anyway, here's the thing. Maybe you remember some of those Greek myths, too. Here's what's true about them. It does not matter when Hercules did his trials. Doesn't matter how... Like, what was the date that Hercules was shoveling horse poo out of the stables? It doesn't matter. Who cares? It's, that's not the point. It doesn't matter when it was that, you know, uh, Aphrodite was born out of the clamshell coming out of the ocean. Like... I don't know. Who cares? They're timeless tales. Ah, historical. They're timeless because history doesn't matter. Events don't matter. The important thing is what they come and communicate to us, see? And that's totally Greek and totally religious. It's true in Eastern religions, too. If you take most Eastern, most religions out, as a matter of fact, I would say all religions outside of Christianity, it doesn't really matter what the leader did. No one really cares when it was that Buddha was under the tree and became enlightened. The point isn't that he did it. The point is learning how you can do it. So who cares when it was? Right? That, that's not, that, that doesn't matter. But if you read the Bible, what you're going to find is a story rooted in history, and that's not coincidental. The Bible is deeply and necessarily historical, and that's because of the story that the Bible tells. You see, if, if the Bible told a story about humanity as our problem being primarily, fundamentally, about getting our thoughts right, it doesn't really matter when things happened and when they didn't, but that's not the story that the Bible tells. It talks about humanity as being in a situation that we can't fix, right? That humanity is broken. We're in a state of sin, that sin isn't just what we do, it's fundamentally who we are, and that because we're in that state, and that state is defined by independence from God, we can't fix it on our own. That makes sense, right? You can't stop being independent independently. Okay? So we need God to come in and deal with this. Thankfully, he's promised to actually rescue us, even though our sin, our betrayal, all that was against him. And that's why Jesus came. Jesus came to rescue us. You see, this is the big difference between Christianity and other religious systems. They give you a, a series of, of things to do to make yourself right, either whether, whether that's with God or with the universe or, or with yourself. But Christianity tells you instead what God did to make you right with him. You see why history matters to Christianity? Because if it didn't, if God didn't act at a certain point to rescue us from, what, from our situation, then we're still in that situation. If God didn't act in history, if he didn't actually come and redeem a people, then, then we're still there. If it's all up to you, what matters is the method. But if it's all on God, what matters is what he did. And so John says, look, look. The baptism of Jesus. God spoke. Spirit descended. Looked like a bird. We're still not sure why. But, but you know, God spoke and he said, this is my son. And then in the, the death of Jesus, crazy things happened. Like the world became dark. There was a three-story uh, curtain in the temple that tore from the top down. Like what is going on? Like all of this stuff is going crazy. And then in the in the after the resurrection, he gave his spirit to the people. These, these things confirm the truth of the gospel. These are all things that God had promised to do, which means that Jesus actually is the answer to those promises. Okay? But then look at verses 9 to 10 for the implications of denial, because he basically says this. Look, man, th this isn't my message. 
This is God's message. He's the one who did the speaking. Uh, And if you're cool taking testimony from a couple of dudes, then why not God's testimony? He continues, like, in fact, if you don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you're actually calling God a liar because this is what he has testified to. Okay? Now, this is pretty straightforward, but let me explain it anyway because that's what preachers do. Uh, We explain really simple things. Uh, Remember, the, the word testimony is about a courtroom. That's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with the issue of a courtroom. And some of you even now are like, like Rick, why do you, why do you keep saying that? It, this is important, okay? It's because of this. If Christianity is intimately tied to history, then the basis for our uncovering whether or not the claims that it makes are true or not need to be the same way that we judge all historical events. Hmm. Well, that's different. I thought we judge religious truth by whether or not I like it. <laughs> I'm talking about historical truth. And see, that's different. Uh, historical truth is judged differently than scientific truth. You know, in the, most of y'all, we've been, we've been, it's may have been a while for you, but you've been in the science classes, right? So you, you engage in reproducing a very controlled set of circumstances to get the same outcome. That's how we do science experiments. It's what always made my science fair project bad. I never could keep control of the experiment. So, like, but you're supposed to keep control of these things in a very controlled environment, repeat these steps, and get this result. That's not how you deal with history, right? Because there are too many variables for history, in particular context, events, and people. And so historical truth isn't judged in a laboratory. It's judged in a courtroom. If you go and you're, you're in a court of law, that's what you're judging, historical truth. Did something happen? And you judge that based on evidence and testimony. Right? And so if you're on a jury and you hear a witness, but you don't believe what they're saying, you don't think to yourself, well, I'm sure that's true for him. It's just not true for me. That's his truth. It's not my truth. That's not what you think. You think that dude's a liar. And you're right to think that. That's what you should think. He's giving false testimony. Now, let's bring it into this issue. And look, I know that you don't want to. I know that we're comfortable with that, especially some of y'all, you're lawyers. You're very comfortable with what I just said. But for the rest of us, like, we're more comfortable with that. But when we bring spirituality into it, we struggle. Don't those categories not mix? That is because, just to give you a little history of philosophy lesson, since the Enlightenment, we have been avid disciples of this dude by the name of Immanuel Kant, who was a philosopher in the, on the continent. Um, brilliant dude, but what he did is he wanted to divide up the world into two levels. You've got the physical plane, and then you've got the spiritual world. You've got the world of the is, and then the world of the ought, right? What I ought to do versus what is. You've got the, the physical and the noumenal. History and faith, and never the twain should meet. Or never they should, can meet. Religion allows that. Religion allows it because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what tree Buddha was under. It doesn't matter uh, what cave Muhammad went in when the angel talked to him. It doesn't matter. All that matters is the rules that Muhammad came out with. All that matters is the, the tenfold path that Buddha left with because those are how we get right. But in Christianity, what, what happened matters. And John is saying, 
God testified to the work of Jesus in his baptism. He was anointed for his work as Messiah, as Savior, as representative king. In his death, the world went dark. You heard me say this. The curtain was torn. Like, all of these things happened. And either that testimony is true or it isn't. With me? So here's why, here's why this, this, this needs to hit us this morning. It is tempting for us to believe that we can be cool with God and yet, yet not believe a lick of what the Bible says about Jesus. As a matter of fact, we can think we're cool with God, not believe anything the Bible says about Jesus, and still call ourselves a Christian. And some of us are here that, this morning. We're in that place. But John says, if that's you, if you aren't, if that's you, if, if that's what you think, you aren't actually cool with God. You're calling him a liar. I don't know about you, but the last time someone called me a liar, I wasn't really cool with them. Right? The work of Jesus is historically verifiable. That's John's argument. But it's also eternally significant. Look down at verse 10. He says, whoever believes in the Son has this testimony in himself, and whoever does not believe uh, God has made him out to be, or does not believe God has made him out to be a liar. Now, if you've got your Bible open and you're in the ESV, that's the translation we generally use around here, you notice that my translation was different, and that's because I, they, I, frankly, they get, get it wrong in the sentence. Uh, what, what you're saying is if you do not believe in the Son, you're making God out to be a liar. That's the important thing here. And, and the word believe there is important. Because you and I, when we hear the word believe, we tend to not think that that belief has any impact on our daily life, right? In other words, like, if you believe in aliens, it's not really affecting what you're doing right now, right? Now, if you go home and put the tinfoil hat on, that's fine. Don't tell me and don't tell anyone else. But, but it, most of us, the, when we think of believe, it doesn't have any impact on us. That's not the case with this kind of belief. To believe in the Son of God is to believe not just that Jesus existed. It's to believe in what he said, why he came, and trusting in that. Which means that we can be off in a ton of ways. Because you may be here and you may believe that Jesus existed, but you don't really believe anything that the New Testament says about uh, who, what, he, what he said or what he did. Uh, it's this is not really important to you. You may believe that Jesus existed and he said some crazy stuff, but he's not really God incarnate and you don't really need him. You may believe, be here and believe that Jesus existed. And you, in fact, you may believe everything that the Bible says about Jesus. Except that you actually need rescuing. You're not really big on that one. I mean, you're doing just fine. That's great for other people, but I'm okay. Some of you actually believe every single thing that the Bible says, including that you need a Savior. You're just not trusting in Him. And it's easy for you to pretend that you're a Christian. The Bible says that that is not belief. John is talking about the kind of belief that you base your life on. It's less like believing in fairies and more like believing in gravity. Right? You and I, we, we don't tend to... That, that belief in gravity is something that we tend to stake everything on, right? That's why you don't jump off bridges or out of planes without a parachute. Your life depends on it. That's the kind of belief that he's talking about. And so here, John's laying out another polarity for us, and I know it's frustrating, but he does it. It's either believing in that way or calling God a liar. You can't have it both ways. Because God testified in this, this thing that actually happened. And so if you're saying, no, I don't believe that, then what you're saying is, God, I think you're a liar. 
That's what he says. We may not like it, but that's what he's saying. So, you may think Jesus is pretty cool, but not really God, or that you don't need saving, and you can believe that. Look, we're not the thought police. You can believe what you want, but you can't call that Christian, and you certainly can't pretend that God is cool with that. If God said, this is my boy, and you're like, nah, I don't think so, then you're calling him a liar. And generally, people aren't cool with you calling them a liar. You're saying, God, you're wrong, and I'm right. You're a liar, I'm in the clear. Okay? And now we come to that internal significance itself. Look down at verses 11 to 12. Here it is. God gave us eternal life. This life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has the life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have the life. Right? So these two verses could take an entire sermon themselves. Uh, but we don't have time for that. So I'm just going to kind of dance over them a little bit, uh, get through them quickly. See, one of the problems in, the, in these verses that we struggle with is that you and I, again, have a mixed-up vision for what this, word, this phrase eternal life means. We think eternal life means going to heaven when you die. Right? That eternal life is all about going to heaven when you die. But see, that phrase in, in, uh, in the original, in, in Greek, really doesn't mean eternal life so much as life of the age. You're like, oh, so? All right. I'll get to it. Life of the age isn't talking about life after death specifically. I mean, it includes that. It's talking about a life of flourishing as God intended. It's talking about a life of wholeness, life of fullness. Eternal life isn't ultimately about going to heaven. It's about being made whole. It's a life apart from death and sin and pain. A life reconciled to the God who made us. A life where all of our relationships lined up. It's a life of wholeness. So does that include being in the presence of God forever? Yes. You and I were made for that. But is it just that? No. It includes being in the presence of God forever, but it also answers the question, what's going to make life worth living? How can my life be fulfilled? What's going to help me? What's going what's to fill that gap in me that I feel like I need to fill with something? How, what is going to do that for me? What's going to make me right again? John's point is this. That is what Jesus came to bring. And he's the only place you can find it. You see that, right? It's another polarity. Drives us nuts. If that's what you're looking for, you can have it in the sun or you can't have it at all. It's either one or the other. And that gets to what faith does. You see, you and I tend to think, when we talk about um, faith, uh, we tend to think of faith as a transactional thing. I give God my faith. He gives me the goodies. Right? I give God faith. He gives me heaven. I give God faith. Um, he gives me a sense of self-righteousness. <laughs> Unfortunately. Uh, but that's not what the Bible talks about with faith. Faith isn't about you giving God something and then he transacts to you. It's about joining us to Jesus. So faith in the scriptures is more of an instrument. It's more of like um, something, you, you know what I mean by that, like an instrument is something you play to make sound. It's not the sound itself. Faith is something that unites us to Jesus. And in Jesus, when we're united to Jesus, we get everything that is true of him. So, we all have a sin issue. Good news. Jesus died for sin. So when we're united to Jesus, his death for sin becomes ours. You and I also have a 
problem with the fact that we're, we never measure up. Good news. Jesus did. So when we are united to Jesus, not only is his death counted as ours, so is his life. It's a, it's a righteousness. And here's the great thing about that. You can't add to it. Try and add to the life of Jesus. How you doing? It doesn't work. You know, we, we have a problem of alienation with God. Good news. Jesus is the perfect Son of God. And so when we're united to Jesus, we're brought into the, the relationship of the Father and the Son, adopted into the family, brought into being, uh, participating in that loving relationship that they have. We are reconciled. That is the life we were made for. That is the life of the age. That is the life that God promised over and over and over again in the Old Testament. That's ultimately what uh, Kathy was reading from Ezekiel. Making the dead come alive again. And John says you can get this in Jesus or not at all. Because that's where the life is. Now, the work of Jesus is historically verifiable and internally significant. But I wanna, I've left a lot of questions open, so I want to bring a couple of things home today, uh, beginning with why history matters. Listen, this should be really clear, but I want to make it more so. I understand that the claims of Christianity are hard to believe. Like some of you, most of you know this. Like I, I, I didn't grow up believing this. I was a convinced atheist as, until I got to college. I had great arguments for it. Incredibly good arguments. I mean, I was smart. Why are you chuckling? Hmm. Okay. Uh, but, but here's the point. Uh, I understand that those arguments are hard to believe. Interestingly enough, I think most of us, when we think about the stuff that's hard to believe, is things like um, the resurrection, which is hard to believe, the miracles, things like that. You know what, you know what I've found the more I, be, the more I grow in my faith is really hard to believe? That God isn't looking for me to give him anything. That I can't actually add something to the work of Jesus. That, that, that in fact, it is, it is Christ and Christ alone. and not, He's not wanting me to give him anything. That is so hard to believe, the more you grow in your faith. Really? The gospel's true? But let, let's get back to the other things. You see, I think we cannot afford to be on the fence on these issues. And, I, and there's probably some of us here who, who consider ourselves that we are. And I, I think many of us love the, the title agnostic because it, it seems really noble. I have an open mind, right? That as an agnostic, what that means is I have an open mind. I'm just not really sure about anything. The problem with that is that there's no such thing as an unvested in opinion. There's no such thing as objective neutral ground. So saying that you're agnostic actually says that you don't believe any of this stuff. And I'm fine with, I'm fine with living life on my own. So we, we hold that title without ever really investigating or considering the claims. It's like a jury member who simply refuses to think about the evidence before them. And, and our other problem is that we tend to treat Christianity and the claims of Christianity as what is most crucial about them isn't whether or not they happen, but whether or not I like them. Like, okay, well... Jesus rose from the dead and lays claim on all the world. Yeah, I don't really like that. Which is fine if it's about religion. Because if you go, I don't really like Buddha's tenfold path. I go, okay. Me either. Tried it. Didn't work. You know, go with something else. Uh, But this passage presses that because it reminds us that Christianity is public truth. 
Either it happened or it didn't. And some of you, I know you're like, but I took a college Bible class. I know that those documents are vested. They have a, they have a vested interest in having me believe them. Right? Those are the only documents we have. They are the ones that have a vested interest. Well, actually, I don't necessarily agree with that. But, but even as a granted, all testimony is vested in some way. Like everybody who's telling you something is trying to convince you of something. But here's what we know. Let me tell you what we know. The New Testament documents are intensely historical, right? Luke's, let's just take Luke's gospel, for example. It starts off with, uh, in the year that this happened, this dude was Caesar, this dude was the governor over this, and this and this and this were going on. You know what we know is actually true? That dude was Caesar, there was a guy named this who was governor of this, and this and this and this were going on. It's intensely historical. Events take place in time and place, and they are accurate about that time and place. They engage with actual historical figures in ways that are verifiable outside of themselves. Pontius Pilate really lived, and we know he did, and we know that he was not a nice guy. Right? No one liked him. The Romans didn't like him. The Jews didn't like him. No one liked him. All of the New Testament documents from Matthew all the way to Revelation, are realistically dated within the lifetime of those who were eyewitnesses to what happened. And we have no documents similarly dated, like within a hundred years, that contradict what these documents say. Not a single one. Now, if that is the case, then we need to engage with what they claim, right? And one of the craziest things that they do claim is the resurrection, because you and I know that dead people don't, don't get up. And ancient people knew this too, which is why Paul, in, in one of his letters in 1 Corinthians, which is arguably one of the earliest in the entire New Testament, says, he, he goes down the list of, this is what I passed on you, this is what I told you is true. I told you about the resurrection, and you can almost see and go, and I know you had a hard time believing it, which is why I told you that Jesus rose and he appeared to this guy and this guy and this guy and this guy and 500 others. And if you want to fact check me, they're still alive. Now, if you're making that up, do you, do you give people the opportunity to fact check you? You just go alternative facts and you move on, right? Like this is, that's not what this does. So here's my challenge to you today if you're struggling to believe the testimony of the New Testament concerning the resurrection. I want to invite you to take the data and come up with a viable alternative that accounts for what we see. That you have followers of a supposedly failed Jewish Messiah, executed by Rome. And there, we have lots of those groups throughout history, so you know about how they tend to act. They go into hiding because they're afraid they're going to be crucified too. Now a few days later, they're out on the streets proclaiming uh, that their leader, who everyone thought was dead, is now alive. He came back. He came back in a way completely unexpected at the time, and that him coming back now proves that he's the long-awaited and long-promised king of the whole world. The one who would reconcile us to God. A claim that would get them marginalized, persecuted, and ultimately killed. Oh, and the fact that no one proved them wrong. Which should have been really easy, like weekend at Bernie's, right? Dead guy. So that's my challenge. I would love to hear it. I'll buy you lunch. We can go talk about it. Okay? But lastly, uh, this text presses us on where we find life. 
Most of us, I would guess, don't really believe we are searching for eternal life. Especially if, you cl- if, if you're here and you identify as a Christian. You're like, no, I got my eternal life. It's wrapped up in Jesus. Others of us are like, eternal life, that's not really important to me. Is it? We tend to think there's this huge gulf between the spiritual and our normal lives. But let me ask you, what are you pursuing today that you think is going to fulfill you? What do you think when you leave this place? As long as I get X, my life is going to be good. My life is going to be okay. Like, is it money? I know we're Americans and we're, we don't struggle with greed, any of us. But, I mean, listen, is it money? Is it like, if I can just get enough of this, I can finally, my life will be worth it, everything will be good, I'll have enough leisure, and everything's just going to work well for me, as long as I can get the quan. Maybe it's not, maybe it's acceptance, and you, you just want people to think well of you, and as long as I can finally win over this person, everyone else loves me except that person. If I can just get them to love me, everything's going to be good for me. My life will be worth it. I'll be worthwhile. Maybe it's success. Like, if I can finally get, uh, arrive in life, and I can finally prove that dude wrong who didn't believe in me, then, then everything will be okay. Now, here's the thing. You probably haven't thought that is a question Jesus has anything to do with, haven't you? But see, what the Bible argues is that what you are longing for isn't money, and it's not success, and it's not love and acceptance. It's God. What you want is to be made whole. You know that something isn't right, but you're hoping that these things that you have control over can, can well, marginal control over, can make it right and can fix you. But John says here that this life, because that's what he's talking about. So if you, if you leave here with nothing else, remember what I've just said. When he says eternal life, he's talking about that longing in you that you can't seem to fill. You just don't think it's wrapped up in God. And he's saying it is. And he's saying that that can only be filled in Jesus and in Jesus alone. Now, there are two aspects of this that I think we need to get through. The first is that John tells us that God gave us this life. Which again, I think if you are a Christian, the longer you're a Christian, the harder that is to believe. Because we have this sense that we should just keep growing. The more we grow, the less we need him. And that God is, at, at some point, we become convinced that God's lucky to have me, or at least lucky-ish. And so as long as I can, I can uh, participate and, and produce something, he's good with me. But John says that God gave this life to us. In other words, we didn't earn it, we accept it. Jesus earned it. And we receive it. And the great thing about it is that if you, don't, if you didn't earn it by things you did, you can't lose it by things you do either. Right? Which isn't the same to say like money. Right? Some of us are like trying to, get, trying to chase that carrot. We just want it. And I don't care whether that carrot is like grand mansions or just having enough money in our retirement account to retire. We're chasing it because then I'll be okay. But you know what the crazy thing about money is? It's like sand in your hands, man. Like you can't keep it. Literally, you can't. You, You can't. You have to spend it. And if you spend it, you have to go get more of it. And how much is enough? 
It's never enough. How many people do you need to win over? And what happens if you have a bad day? Because you know what? You do. So do I. But if you didn't do anything to get it, if it was just given to you, you can't do anything to lose it. God gave us life. The second thing is that this is, he gave us life in his son, in Jesus. Because you notice that he didn't say Jesus and a good life. He didn't say Jesus and moral responsibility. He didn't say Jesus um, and, and uh, I don't know, um, an amazing story of transformation. Nor did he say Jesus and getting enough money. Because some of us as Christians are convinced. Like we say, yes, I, my hope's in Jesus. Functionally, your hope's in your checkbook. And you kind of know that, and you're like, well, I'm repenting of that. And what you really mean is, I trust more money than I do Jesus. Because, answer me this, if Jesus were suddenly not in your life, but you could still have your money, what are you going to miss more? Hmm. The life is in the Son. It is in Jesus and Jesus alone. So listen, God knows that you're needy. He knows that I'm needy. Life is in the sun. God knows that you're not enough. He knows that I'm not enough. Life is in the sun. And he knows that you struggle. He knows that I struggle. God knows I struggle. Life is in the sun. But you have to come to his provision because life is in the Son. Would you pray with me? And it's funny, Jesus, I feel like I just preached two different sermons on the same text with the same notes in two different places. And I think it's because over time, even in the travel and in the preaching, I think what you were trying to press on me this morning is that it's really easy for us if we're Christians in this room to think that this has very little to do with us because we believe in the historical veracity of the New Testament and we believe in X, Y, or Z, but we are not looking for life in the sun. And so I pray, whether we're a believer or not, that you would give us repentance this morning to find our life in the sun in Jesus and in him alone, because you gave it to us. You didn't ask us to work for it. All we have to do, the only thing we need is need. The Lord, convince us that we have that. And to bring you our need. And to find that you are gracious to fill it. As you do it, we're going to give you glory. As you do it, we'll, we'll proclaim, we'll... We want to see your name made famous in this city, so we'll tell others, but Lord, give us that life in the sun. We ask in Christ's name.